no one's going to be here, okay? So uh, just, just wanted to make that uh, clear to you. But today there is Praise Factory, so kids, you are dismissed back to Praise Factory. Uh, adults, if you would, and kids who remain, if you turn to um, the uh, Romans chapter 5, we're going to take a, a look this morning and we're going to read uh, Romans 5, 1 through 11. But if you also want to turn to uh, maybe do that classy, like keep your finger in one place, or you'll have to navigate on your phone. Uh, I'm going to read a, uh, a section of uh, Luke 19 when uh, I finish with Romans 5, 1 through 11. So Romans chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It says in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 19, and they brought the donkey to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that made for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you as those who are ready to humbly receive. I thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to proclaim it and for the way that you have ministered to my heart and soul as I have prepared to come and stand before my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray that you would help each and every one of us to grapple, to wrestle with the truths that are to be presented. We've heard them spoken perfectly as they've been read, your spirit speaking through the word. But now, as we move to the explanation, I pray that you would work through me, Lord, to communicate the truth. It is a humbling thing to stand before people and to proclaim the word of God. And so I pray that your spirit would superintend the word and that all things that are said would bring glory to you and build an appreciation for your word. Lord, I pray that as there was a crowd of people who shouted, Hosanna, 
and save now. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet they did not understand what they were saying. I pray that we who have heard the scriptures and who understand the implications of the gospel, I pray that we would know what we say when we say, save us. And we would know what we have in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I'm not sure that this study exists, but I would love to see it. Um, I think that, that there is probably uh, somebody who has studied how many gift cards have been purchased and given and then never cashed in, right? You know, um, when, when, you, when you receive a, a gift card or uh, some kind of a gift certificate, many times those, those things go wherever it is that, that pens go, right? You know, or socks go. You know, they, they manage to vanish into, unless you have some system set up for not losing gift cards. Okay, don't judge me here. Uh, what, what, what I find is that these, these things tend to migrate into drawers or into pockets or into jackets or, you know, they, they hide places. And when that happens, what I, what I, what I believe is people have in, invested value and then that value is lost. Now, the really nice companies will will never take value away from their card. But there are some who they're like, after two years lying dormant, we will begin to take away $2 every month, and then all the money and value is, is gone. And so the, uh, the card is then empty. If we fail to use what we have been given, we're leaving value on the table. We are failing to apply a benefit which is rightfully ours and we are leaving it to evaporate or just lay there. We have forgotten to apply what we have, even though it is our present possession. We've forgotten to remember to apply it because we, we've forgotten that it exists. And so it's important to hold tight to the value and to understand the implications of what we've been given. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, he was signaling to the people that he was the fulfillment of what the scriptures had promised, that he was the coming king. He was the one who was promised ahead of time, that he was the savior who the people were waiting for. And they cried out, Hosanna, and save us. But when Jesus' fortunes change just days later, when he is taken captive and brought before the court, the crowd shifts and cries out, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. And here's part of the, here's part of the problem of what I think happened on, on Palm Sunday. The expectation of the people was that Jesus would come and triumph over corrupt human systems and that he would eject Rome and that he would be their political savior. But this is not why Jesus came. He did not come to save the people merely from a human government, but instead to save them from their own sins. And when it became clear to them that Jesus would provide no immediate benefit or they failed to understand the value of what he was bringing, they abandoned him and they left so much unclaimed or unused. As we look at Romans 5 this morning, this is my hope. My hope is, is that we will understand the basics, that will build this, this basic foundation again, something I think has to happen over and over and over again when we talk about the gospel. What does Jesus accomplish? But then that we would say that there is value in knowing what he brings to us, and we cannot leave that on the table and expect to live the joyous Christian life, to, to understand that the gospel is truly good news. And so I want to I talk about that and then center on the example and dig deep into the implications so that, so that we will celebrate what we have in Christ. The first thing that we need to know is we need to know what we have. 
We spent some time in Romans chapter 1 through 3 talking about the utter condemnation of all human beings because of, of sinful actions and sinful desires that they have engaged in, and the condemnation of all humanity is just. And then we talked about the radical idea that, that God says, even though you have not been righteous in your actions, you can achieve righteousness in another way. That's the bold amazing claim of the good news about Jesus, that righteousness can come by faith in Christ. And then we looked at what that means, the, the application of it. What does it mean to be justified? And now we come to Romans 5, where, where Paul is discussing what the implications are that God has said, if you believe in Christ, you are righteous, and all sins, past present and future are covered and paid for. When Jesus is in the garden, the night before he goes to the cross, he prays to his father and asks that the cup could pass from him. Is there another way? And then he says, nevertheless, your will be done. He goes to the cross and and taking hold of this biblical symbol that rolls through all the Old Testament about the cup of God's wrath being passed around and that they would have to drink it as if it were, it were poison. He drinks down the cup on the cross. He takes the full penalty for sin. When, when the cup comes around for believers, it is empty of God's wrath. What do we celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together? We celebrate the fact that the cup is a partaking in the blood of Christ. It is full of his righteousness. There is no wrath or condemnation because he has taken the full penalty and filled the cup with blessing. That's what we have. So when Paul begins by saying, therefore, right, he's going to build an argument. He's going he's to say, Christian, this is what you have. But he begins on this foundation, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, right? This is, this is what we believe. Jesus goes to the cross, takes our sins for us. We receive his righteousness. That's what we know. Jesus died for our sins. Kids know this. We teach it to them. But we are engaged in a spiritual battle. And my understanding, my belief is this. The devil does not want you to understand the full implications of what you have been given in Christ, and even your own flesh wants to wriggle out from underneath the blessing of the gospel, of that, of that good news, and it wants to try to justify itself. It wants to earn God's affection. We have been justified by faith. Jesus has paid the bill for us. It is paid for. And so what do we have? What do we truly enjoy? This is, this is, I was talking about this in adult Bible study this morning. I think that many Christians think this about their life. They think, well, you know, my, my life was a mess and it wasn't exactly going well, or you know, I, I, was, I was ignorant of the demands of God in my life, and so I just was kind of going about my life, and then I heard the truth about the gospel, and I believed it, and Jesus forgave my sins. But what they think in the present is, God doesn't really like me. Or they, they think, but if I mess up too much, God will hurl lightning bolts down at me. He's just he's searching or looking for an opportunity to crush me and punish me. And let me tell you, I, this, this isn't just like, hey, what I think about people. It's things that are dr draw out in conversation. Does God really love me? Does he notice me? Does he care for me? Can I ruin this thing? This is the good news. I think the scriptures are written to answer these basic human fears that we struggle with when we think about the righteousness of God, a truly righteous God who demands that we walk in holiness. So look at what Paul says. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, okay, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? 
We have it. We have it. Because of a past act, we have something in the present, right? Somebody who loves you went to the store and bought you a gift card. And they gave it to you in an envelope and said, happy birthday, you're the best nephew, niece, uncle, aunt, whatever, you know? And you now possess that. Think through what that means. You have value. You have something that, 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 that you have a right to. You own it. There's a lot of talk about American rights in the media right now. Whether it's our property rights or our due process rights, people are fighting over the right to own bear arms, however you want to discuss that debate, and they are laying claim to certain things under the law. As a Christian, do you regularly hold, lay hold of your divine rights? Now, I don't mean that you have divine rights like in the old-fashioned sense of the way they talk about the divine right of kings, right? The divine right of kings is God made the king the king, therefore he can't do anything wrong, and he can do whatever he wants. That's not what we're talking about here. Um, none of us are kings, except for the king uh, who attend church here. Interesting. You'll have to edit that out later. Um, so, uh, 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 the, the, so, yeah, that's a weird aside. Um, do we lay hold of what we have been given by God? If we are justified, if we have put our faith and trust in Christ and said, I am a sinner and I need a savior, then the scripture says that we will be saved. Charles Wesley expressed it this way in a song. He's discussing the fact that God is satisfied with his own arrangement. He speaks of Jesus interceding for us, and this is, this is the way the lyrics go. The Father hears him pray, speaking about Jesus, his dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his Son. The Spirit answers to the blood. The Spirit answers to the blood and tells me I am born of God. So Jesus appealing on behalf of the sinner and saying, I have taken his place. I have given him my righteousness. This is our arrangement. The father hears and listens. And the spirit says, we are born of God. Now, this is what Wesley says in another verse. He says, my God is reconciled. Everything is taken care of. It adds up. It is paid for. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. That's good, isn't it? If we have been justified, declared righteous by God, and if you have put your faith and trust in Christ, then you are justified. Then you have peace with God. It is true that we declared war with our actions. It is true that we declared war with our emotions. We don't like to do the right things sometimes, right? It is true that we declared war with our expectations of God, that he exists to serve us. But we have peace because these things are forgiven because they are paid for. So we have peace with God. Second, we, we have something else. It says, through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So when I, when I became a pastor back in New Jersey, I would occasionally have to do hospital visits. And, um, you know, they, you, you go in and you say, oh, I'm Pastor Keith. And they, like, you know, write out this little visitor thing. And they stick it on you. And you walk around all obvious. Um, here in Salisbury, this is so cool. I arrive in town and I send a note and I say, hey, I'm a pastor. And they're like, hey, come in and get your picture taken, right? We'll give you a badge. And like a badge, you know, like, okay, that's cool. Like a little laminated badge. No, it's got like a barcode on it, like a, like a magnetic stripe, you know? And I walk into the emergency room, right? And I'm like, boop, and the door unlocks. I'm like, I cannot believe this. I've 
I've, I've thought many times, like, I'm going to go through radiology. I'm going to go through here. I'm going to go through there. Like, what doors does this thing open? I, I have not tested it to the fullness of its limits, and I keep it in a safe place. So don't be thinking, like, you're going to go anywhere you want. But you have access through Christ through the declaration of God that you are right with him and you are at peace with him, you have access into this place that Paul calls the grace in which we stand. You now exist in a relationship with, of grace with God, not a relationship of works. We, we are born into this relationship of we must obey or we are condemned, but when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we now have access into a relationship of grace. What we struggle with often is we think that grace still depends on our works. That grace depends on what we do, that God will continue to be gracious depending on what we do. But our relationship with him is not built on our works. We are not saved by our works. We are not preserved by our works. We are saved and preserved by the works of Jesus Christ, which are perfect and unchanging. Paul and Jesus speak about the difference between slaves and sons. Slaves are enslaved to the law, and they must obey the law perfectly. Sons exist in a relationship of grace. Galatians 4, 7 says this, describing that if we are in Christ, you are, Paul says, no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. You are no longer a slave if you've put your trust in Christ. You are now God's child. You are his son and you are an heir. This is what Jesus says in John 8 verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. Right? The slave has no inheritance. He doesn't live in a, in a perfect relationship of grace with the master. But it says here that the son does remain forever. You are a child of God if you have put your faith and trust in Christ. You have access into the grace in which we stand, and you are in a true relationship with God. Now, Jesus is the Son of God by his nature, right? He, he has always existed in this relationship with the Father and is perfectly pleasing to God. We are not like Jesus in that way, but we are like him in that we receive the benefits of knowing him because we have his righteousness. And so we are sons of God by his grace. And if you are a son of God, you are a son of God. You are a child of God. There is no different in the benefit extended. Now, he will be king because he deserves it. And we all know it if we understand the blessing and the benefit of knowing him. But there will be no second-class citizens in heaven. There will not be the ultra-good folks who God really likes and then the people who he kind of had to invite because somebody's got to clean up when the party's over, right? It's not going to be like that. So we have peace. We also have obtained access. Third, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We can truly rejoice in hope. There is a kind of rejoicing that comes when there is uncertainty. There's this like, maybe this good thing will happen. Maybe it will turn out this way. Maybe I'll get, and then if I get, everything will be good. But what Paul is saying here is we in the present rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because there are good things promised to us built on a sure foundation. We hope in the glory of God. We hope and believe, and I don't mean hope like with uncertainty. I mean we believe that it will be so, that we will truly be accepted. Many of us, some of you, truly struggle with the sense that you think that you will be rejected. 
you've experienced rejection and you wonder, will God one day reject me? No. Peace with God means that we will be with him, we will be glorified, we will be righteous in his presence, we will be like the Son of God, and we will be accepted. We also rejoice in the hope, in the promise that we will truly be whole. Deep down, the pain of not being healthy or be not being well or being full of aches or struggling or battling against all kinds of, of different problems makes us think, will it ever change? We will be whole. God will do it. The fear that something that we might do would undo everything is counteracted by God's promise in the book of Jude that we are being kept and we will truly be kept. God will preserve us to the end. We want to know as human beings that we will truly be loved. And this is the good news. This is the point of what is written in the scriptures. Knowledge of this fact that we can truly rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This is not hoping that you like have a rich relative somewhere that has no other people who know them and want their money and they're just going to leave you everything, right? That's like crazy hope. That's not really hope. Hope in the Bible is the firm expectation that things will turn out as promised, that they're not empty words. Colossians 1.27 says this, to them, this is uh, speaking of, 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 of the Gentiles uh, to, to, and also of the apostles. In Colossians 1.27, Paul says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Okay, What Paul is saying here is, is that he's been tasked with explaining the good news of the gospel to people. The, the fantastic... Uh, uh, news of what God has been doing behind the scenes. It's a mystery, right? A mystery in the Bible is not like call Sherlock Holmes, call Scooby-Doo, you know? A mystery in the Bible is, is something that was hidden in the past but is now revealed. That's the way mysteries work. The mystery of what God had been working on all this time uh, and which is, which is now being revealed and proclaimed is this. Christ in you the hope of glory. Christ in you. God's been working on a project. He's kept it secret all this time. And now it's been accomplished on the cross. And Jesus has ascended. And he sent his missionaries through the world. And they're preaching and they're teaching. And what are they saying? That the righteousness of Christ will be inside you. And that means that you will stand righteous and gloriously before God one day. That's, that's what the Bible's teaching. That's the point. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, not only that, not only can we have a firm expectation that one day we will be in God's presence, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, don't let the devil kind of take this on a, on, a, on a side turn and you suddenly get all like self-condemning, like last time I suffered, I didn't rejoice. You know, like I was like, nah, 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 nah. you know, I used, I used cartoon curses, you know, and, um, and, and, and I didn't like, you know, I, I wasn't happy about it, okay? Should we rejoice in our sufferings if we understand the gospel truly? Yes, but don't like bury yourself in guilt here, okay? We, we ought to rejoice, and we should. And so, so this, is, this is a value that we ought to aspire to as Christians. But we can rejoice. We have the ability to. And this is what I believe is true of many Christians. We often do rejoice in our sufferings in retrospect. And so when we think about present suffering, when we think back to former suffering, and we apply it to the present and we say, God has brought me through suffering in the past. God has brought me through trials. And he will do it again. We can say, I praise God and I cling to him. Faith isn't always easy. Faith isn't always automatic. Faith is a, a struggle sometimes. To, co to continually say, 
I choose not to doubt. I choose to believe. I choose to believe. I choose to celebrate. I choose to rejoice. Also, I think sometimes Christians commit this mental error where they say that they're suffering because God has appointed it for them, because God has, has sent something to them that they think that they must say that this bad thing which is occurring is good because God will use it for his good. Does that make sense? Paul, Paul, Joseph, all the way back in the Old Testament, not Paul, um, Joseph, all the way back in the Old Testament, said to his brothers, you intended this for evil, right? They didn't like him. He's always running his mouth, telling him how blessed he was by their, their dad and how he was going to rule over them and stuff. And he's like, look at my coat. Dad loves me. And they were like, we're going to throw you in a pit and sell you into slavery. They intended it for evil, and it was evil. But Joseph's perspective is that God intended it for good. It was bad, and God used it for good. We can rejoice in our sufferings and say, God, change this. Spare me from this. Take this away. Jesus did the same thing in the garden. He said, if possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, your will be done. And so you don't have to say, I rejoice in my suffering because it's good. No, we can rejoice in the fact that our suffering will not destroy our relationship with God. We can rejoice in the fact that our suffering is not always a sign of God's displeasure or condemnation. We can say suffering comes and suffering is bad, but it is not evidence that God hates me. When we fast forward all the way to Romans 8, uh, Paul will say that nothing will separate us from the love of God. And then he'll talk about famine, nakedness, sword, all of these things that many of us, if we looked at somebody and we saw them in that condition, we would say, that person needs Jesus. We can rejoice knowing that God is with us in the midst of our deepest, darkest sufferings. Suffering produces endurance. You know how all those athletes got so good at doing all that hard stuff that they make look so easy? Winter Olympics just ended, right? You know, and then, and then, and then the people who narrate ice skating, man, let me repent of something because I probably said it behind this pulpit years and years ago. I used to say, like, I watch ice skating to watch people fall, right? I'm truly, like, I'm ashamed of myself now. I used to say that. Like, I just want to see them fall. And now when they fall, I'm like, oh, you poor thing. Like, you worked so hard and you got all this way and you're really, really good and you had a bad moment. But they work at it and work at it and work at it and work at it and they jump over and over and over and over again. There's that girl who was, like, in all the credit card commercials and she was like, I'm a skier and I'm great and I'm going. And she, like, fell every single time she skied. I just felt horrible for her. How do those athletes who win get so good? It's through pain. It's through pain. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character because we have set our minds and hearts on being who God calls us to be, what he wants us to be, who he wants to shape us into, and as we grow in character, it produces hope. The solemn assurance that God will give us all that he has promised. The solemn assurance that it will be as we believe. And this is what Paul says. That glimmer of hope, that beacon that we nourish and fire up in our hearts. Romans 5, 5. Hope does not put us to shame. It doesn't disappoint. Why? Because what God promises is a promise from God. In the Old Testament, Solomon, Joshua, Moses, several times they say not one good thing of all that you have promised has failed to come to pass. We have the Old Testament example that when God says it will be so, that it will. But there's an even greater New Testament example that we're going to look at in just a second. Hope does not put 
us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so the encouragement here is the Spirit is in us and he will nourish and lead and guide and grow us in the ability to have good perspective in the middle of suffering and in the middle of pain, even though it is real and painful. Okay, this is not a command, though, to look to the Holy Spirit, although that is a good thing. The command here is not to look to the Spirit and say, change my perspective, transform me. That's not what Paul does here. Paul will move on eventually to the ministry of the Spirit, but what he's doing here is he's pointing to what the Spirit points us to. The Spirit is the means by which the love is poured, right? Without getting too, like, to, to base, the Spirit is the vessel that gives us the love of God. The love of God is, is sent by means of the Spirit. But what we're pointed on to is how the love of God is expressed. And so we need to learn from the example of what God has done. We've, we've, been, we've seen an explanation of benefits that flow to us. But we need to know that the promises that have been made have actual value, right? When someone gives me one of those cards, you, you, you check it, right? You check to see that there's, a, that there's like a magnet stripe on the back of it or a number, right? Sometimes they got a little scratch-off thing on them or they got a logo on the front, right? It looks genuine. When you're, when you're a kid... And, and this happens a lot in our house, when, when a kid is inspired to artistic endeavors, right, and is like, I'm going to make you a gift card, you know, here's a certificate. It, it, it has emotional value, right? It's cute, but you can't take it to a store, right? You can't say, here, people, hand over product. You can't go to the Amazon website and when it says, like, scan your gift card, you know, if you, like, position your camera over it, you know, and you're like, it'll just say, like, sorry, 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 because there's nothing behind it. It's sweet. We, I take pictures of all that stuff, and I, like, post them on Facebook, the sweet stuff that my kids do. You know, we put it out there, we keep it, you know, we find it a couple of years, and we're like, aw, but it, 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 it didn't buy us anything. You know what I mean? Is there real power and real value behind all that God has promised here? And that's what Paul turns to next. He says, we need to learn from what we have seen. It says this in verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. The principle here is that this is the foundation on which we should understand our relationship of grace with God. We were weak. Now, when you choose a sports team to follow every season, when your sport starts, you choose to follow them for one of two reasons, right? You, you either choose them because you think that they're strong. Years ago, my mom brought this bag full of clothing and my... My boy Max, he pulled out this Packers jersey. It said Favre and four on the back, right? Wasn't that a number? You know, Favre. Yeah, and it was like, that was it. This, 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 these colors, this name, this number, it all conveyed power, right? Strong, right? Well, how do you stick with them all these years when they continually fail and they all get hurt and they don't win, you know, and they're, they're guy just like a collarbone, done, you know? Like, and, and, and your whole team falls apart. When you, when you stick with someone, you stick with them out of loyalty and devotion and love. When we say that, that, that our relationship with God is built on our works, when we think he will abandon me if I do this or if I fail or because I've done this or because I think this way or because I struggle, we are saying that God would choose us on the basis of our strength. But the Bible says while we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Why? He sticks with us. He chooses us because of affection. Because he truly, really cares. We were weak. 
We were weak in sin and could not uphold the law. We were weak in righteousness and could not live holy lives. We were weak in our ability to repay what would have been extracted from us. We don't have the currency by which we can repay our evil deeds. And so the Lord in love sent his son to save. Now, some theologians rightly emphasize that the holiness of God demands a sacrifice and that, and that it ought to be that we look at this and we say that, that God the Father says there must be punishment and so Christ says, I will bear it. And they say that the primary focus is, is the justification of God's righteousness and his wrath and that sin must be paid for. And this is all true. These theologians point to a culture that is self obsessed and that underestimates the holiness of God and they say these folks will never understand the importance of repentance if all we talk about is God's love. But what I think for many Christians, for many serious believers who dig into the word and who understand the holiness of God, they get the idea in their head that the love of God is therefore somehow unimportant. And it is easy then to move to think that they are unimportant and that God is indifferent to them. That he could go on without them. That he doesn't really care. That they're like pennies. Right? I mean, I pick up pennies. I do. I don't know if it helps, but I do it. I calculated once and I figured I need to make like $60 an hour or something. To, to not pick up a penny. It's, it's, but like if I drop one and it just kind of rolls into the sewer or it goes underneath the fridge, like I'm not pulling the fridge out for that thing. It's not that important, right? Is that the way you think God thinks about you? If you don't make it, it's cool, there'll still be a lot of people in heaven, right? No. It says that at, while they were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly, because God is a God who values his righteousness and his holiness, and he also values the people whom he created. He loves them. And so he sent his son to die for them, and that is the foundation on which we should build the house, the structure of all of God's good and gracious promises to us. Paul goes on and says that one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The principle here is that it is incredibly difficult to take the place of someone. There are people that we would, that we would help, that we would give anything to, Parents know and understand that it's like, what do you need? You need a kidney? Like, I'll hand it over. But it's incredibly difficult to ponder saying, I will give my life for someone else. We don't get that opportunity. Uh, a number of years ago, um, there's a lady attending the church in New Jersey uh, named Josie Connors. And uh, she was great. She was, she was like this tall, right? You know, sweet. She'd say, hallelujah, really loud in the middle of church. And everybody, be, everybody knew who Josie was. Uh, loved her. She was great. And you can feel free to say hallelujah if, if, if the Lord moves. And once I was like, I love that you say hallelujah. And she's like, the spirit tells me to do it, so I do it. Um, so uh, Josie got sick, and a number of people said that, uh, you know, that, the, or, or she, she her daughter put out that she needed some people to donate some blood, and so I was like, all right, I'll donate some blood. Um, you know, I've done that before. You know, no big deal. I got hooked up to the machine. This is like the plasma thing, I think, that was like, you know, it's like the more intense treatment. And so I wasn't expecting to be hooked up to this machine like that for that long. Um, but I was there, and, uh, and, they, and they took the blood. And then I went to visit her a couple days later, in the hospital and they said hey we're going to do your transfusion i was like oh that's okay i'll leave and she was like no no no, stay so the nurse came in and hooked up the transfusion um and uh she matched up the the records right and she said this was the blood that was donated for you on tuesday and i was like that's my blood 
and it was going into her right then and there. And she would say to me always after that, every time I saw Josie, she would say, we're like family. We're like family. I've got your blood in me. We're like, we're like family. Think about that. Jesus goes to the cross for you. He takes the wrath of God to honor his father and to satisfy the, the Trinity's righteous demands for judgment. But then what we are told is that he gives us his blood. We celebrate around the Lord's table that we are participating in his blood. We remember him and we, we, we drink symbolic blood, acknowledging where our righteousness comes from. His blood taken into us is what makes us righteous. That is love. If I asked if you would help someone in need, you would probably say, yes, if I asked if you would give up half of what you own for somebody, the, the, the number of people willing to do that and the number of people you'd be willing to do it for would probably decrease dramatically. If I said, would you give up an organ for someone, the number would probably narrow. You wish you could help everyone. I mean, there have been times where I've thought, uh, should I sign up for like kidney donation? Because there are people in need, but then I think like maybe my kids will need one one day. Maybe my wife. Like I need to keep this thing intact. Right? <laughs> I mean, seriously, this is the way that we think. This is a human analogy. There are people that we would say, I would take a bullet for that person. That's true affection. If they have a bad day or a bad week or a bad year, are you just going to be like, I throw that person away? Parents don't do that to their kids, do they? And if they do, they don't understand love. Paul says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. What, what does that mean? much more. The effects of hostility against God were bad. The alienation from him, the anxiety and the stress of future coming judgment, but the fullness of wrath bearing that personally, we have no idea. It is beyond understanding, beyond endurance, beyond knowing. But we have been saved. We have been made at peace with God. We have been declared righteous. And that means that when wrath comes, we will survive it because of what he has done for us. So Paul goes on, driving towards the conclusion here. For if we were enemies, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Paul will say later on in this book, if he has given us his son, how will he not with his son give us all things? We have been given an amazing blessing when we have been forgiven of our sins. It's amazing. If we truly understand the holiness of God and what it would truly take to make us righteous, we will overflow with gratitude. But that is not all that we have been given. We have been given access to God by grace. We have been called his children. We understand that our suffering has a point and a purpose, and we understand that we will be saved from future wrath by God. And so as Paul concludes, he says the only logical thing here. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If the primary reaction that you have when you think of God, when you think of your relationship with your father, if the first thing that you feel is guilt, you're not doing enough, praying enough, serving enough, giving enough, caring enough, sharing enough, you need to live here in this passage and say it over and over and over and over to yourself because God is not angry with you. He may want to shape you. He may want to transform you and guide you and chip off something that's unhelpful and remove a, a behavior here or confront an issue that you are hiding. But he is not angry with you and he does not desire to destroy you. He loves you. Years ago, I remember it 
super vividly because I thought, what is that preacher doing? My, my pastor, uh, Mike Greiner, he finished a sermon by saying at the end of the movie, uh, Willy Wonka, when they get into the glass elevator, if you've seen the movie, Gene Wilder's version is so much better than the newer one that they made. Amen. Yes. <laughs> the spirit moved you. Yeah. Um, Willy Wonka asks Charlie, what do you think of the chocolate factory? He says, it's the most wonderful place in the world. I love it. And then he says, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give you the most wonderful thing. That is what the gospel is like. But it's not a story. The most wonderful thing that we could have is true peace with God. And all the benefits that flow from it. And we need to not leave the value on the table by constantly cutting ourselves short internally. Paul will get to holiness. Paul will get to obeying God. Paul will get to loving others and enduring and serving and suffering and living righteous lives. But it's built on the foundation that righteousness comes from Christ. And that righteousness produces a relationship where we are at perfect peace with God, and therefore everything that flows, everything that is good, is all motivated by love, and it is all good with God. That's the good news. That's our identity. That's what we have been given. Let's pray and sing a closing song together. Father, as we come to, uh, to close out our time this morning, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray, I pray for those who are here, who are hearing the gospel for the first time, or perhaps coming to, to grips with the implications of it. I pray that they would believe your amazing promise that if they put their faith and trust in Christ, then they are right with you, that that is how you have arranged it. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters, many of whom struggle with deep burdens and deep pains, some who battle to believe in your love, I pray that you would encourage and help them, that they would strive and reach and pray and call upon you to help. But I pray that they would nourish themselves on the promises of your word. You have put these things before us in writing that 